All right. Well, as we continue on with the next portion of the sermon, I want to invite you, if you will, to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, which Max has already read. And in a sense, I've summarized with the, with the kids here this morning. And as you open up uh, to Matthew chapter 10, I'm going I'm to pray for us. Father, we thank you in particular for these children, God. We pray that they would be disciples of yours, God, that they would follow you and that they would inherit all of the blessings that you have yourself, that you extend to them. Would they take you up on your call to be a disciple, Lord? And now we pray the same for us. Let us Take up your call to be disciples. Let us learn what it is, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow you. And let us do that for all of our days and then enjoy the fruits of that in eternity, sitting with you on your throne forever. In your name we pray, amen. So, in verse 1, which I'll just read here. I'll just read, I'll, I'll read this. It says this, verse one. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. This is a very similar sentence to one that we saw last week and some of the weeks before that. In particular, healing every disease and every affliction is a phrase we've seen before. But previously, this was said about Jesus, that Jesus healed every disease and that Jesus healed every affliction. But now in chapter 10, verse 1, it's not just Jesus who does this anymore. It's the disciples too. Let's look at the passages previously where Jesus healed every disease and every affliction. If you flip in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it'll read this. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, here's the phrase, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Okay, so that's how chapter 4, verse 23 opens up. And then the portion is closed with the exact same phrase in chapter 9, verse 35. And Jake preached on this last week. And it reads, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages Exact same sentence, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. From chapter 4 to chapter 9, there, there's bookends on either side of what that chunk is all about. And the main point of chapters 4 to 9 have basically been twofold. And we've talked about this already in previous sermons, but to summarize again, Twofold. Point one, Jesus has supreme authority. And point two, he uses that authority to restore. So Jesus has supreme authority and he uses that authority to restore. That's the bookends of chapters four to nine. But now in chapter 10, Jesus shares that authority with his 12 disciples. Looking at verse 1 again, I'm going to highlight the phrase, he gave them authority. You see that? He gave them authority over unclean spirits to heal every disease and every affliction. He gives them what he has so that they can do what he does. 
I'll say that again. He gives them what he has so that they can do what he does. Jesus has authority, and he uses it to restore people. And then he gives that authority to the disciples so that they can then go and do the same thing that he just did. Something to notice in verse 1 is that the purpose of this authority is also made very clear. In verse 1, so Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits, and here's the purpose statement, to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. So to cast out demons is what that is another way to um, render unclean spirits. Those, word, those terms mean the same thing. So their authority is to cast out demons and to heal. That's the purpose of their authority. The purpose of their authority, very explicitly, is to restore, is to restore. This is a benevolent authority. Jesus doesn't just use his authority to reign in tyranny. He uses his authority to bless and to love, to care for, to restore Chapter 10, verse 1, is provoked by the previous paragraph. Jesus calling his 12 disciples is provoked by what we saw in Jake's sermon last week. Jesus is reacting to the crowds in chapter 9, verse 36, and he has compassion on them. He sees that they're harassed, that they're helpless, that they're without a shepherd. So he feels compassion for them. That's how he's motivated. And then he goes on to say, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into his harvest. They need help. They need to be restored. And we need laborers to do that work. And so that is what motivates Jesus then to summon his disciples. Last week, as I mentioned, Jake preached on that last chapter of, the last paragraph, excuse me, of chapter 9, which I just mentioned. But he also mentioned something that's worth repeating here. Jesus is God, right? If he's so determined, he could reap the whole harvest just like that. He could just do it. He's God. He can do anything. But he is determined to involve us. He's determined not to just do it all by himself, but to let us participate in his work. He invites us to participate. Specifically, he invites us to receive what he has and to do what he does. To receive what he has and to do what he does. Another example of this in Scripture where Jesus gives us what he has, and it's kind of, if you will, an ultimate example, an example that revolves around our salvation. God the Son gives us his kind of, if you will, status as son, right? God the Son, that's Jesus, gives us his sonship, and for women, daughterhood, Galatians 3.26 is a passage that captures this idea. Galatians 3 reads, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Applied to everyone explicitly in the room. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons or daughters of God through faith. God the Son makes us sons and daughters. We receive what He has. Sonship. Daughter, so that we can do what he does. John 14, 22. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So, the eternal son 
makes us sons and daughters of God so that we can do what the Son does. I'll say that again. The eternal Son makes us sons and daughters so that we would do what the Son does. When Jesus saves us and makes us God's children, we participate in the life of Jesus. Yeah, so he is our example. That's true. But that's not the only thing that Matthew chapter 10 verse 1 is getting at. He's not only our example, although he is our example indeed. He's more than that. His very life becomes our life. His identity as the Son of God becomes our identity as sons and daughters of God. And his works or his actions as the Son of God become our actions as sons and daughters of God. This will culminate in our eternal life with him when he shares his throne with us in heaven. I mentioned this to the kids, and I'll quote the passage now. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. It reads this, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. One of the kids brought up, a helpful logistical point for me. I can't offer everyone sit on my throne. I have a limited size throne. Jesus doesn't. Jesus has an unlimited size throne, big enough to seat everyone who would ever believe, every child of God. He invites to participate in his kingship. We get to reign with him. We sit on his throne with him. We participate in Jesus' whole life. And so that's why Jesus gives the disciples his authority in this case of chapter 10 verse 1. So that they would use it the same way he does and therefore participate in his life. I want to pause for a moment to just point out something that may already be obvious to you. But I think it's important enough to, to say it out loud and even really think about it and, and meditate on it. A disciple is committed to Jesus. A disciple is committed to Jesus. Even outside Christianity, I think people basically know that a disciple in general is a, a student and a follower of whatever leader they admire. To, to be a disciple assumes that you learn from and follow whoever your leader is. So, I have, a, I have a question for us, a question about our discipleship with Jesus. Can it be said of your life that you regularly learn from Jesus? Can it be said about your life that you regularly follow Jesus? Or another way to say that is obey Jesus. Can that be said of your life? And I don't ask these questions as someone who has arrived to a perfect place of discipleship by any means. I'm asking these questions of myself as I'm asking them of you. But if you're a Christian, do you learn from Jesus? Do you let him inform you of what's true? Or do you decide on your own what's true? Romans 12, 2 says that um, God, ha, don't, not to be transformed by the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. The renewal of our mind. Jesus wants to teach us. He wants to renew our mind, our perspective. Sometimes people might ask us, 
hey, what do you believe about this? Or what do you think about that? Maybe this will happen with our friends, with our families, in our jobs. When people ask us what we think about things, or when we consider what we think about something about the world or about what we ought to do, is our first reaction to consider what Jesus says in the Bible? Or do we save that kind of thinking only when we're in like a church setting? Oh, I'll think about that um, when I'm around my church friends, but not around my other friends. I gotta, I gotta focus on, on fitting in and, and connecting with these people. Or perhaps at work, oh, I'll think about what Jesus teaches when I'm around my family, but not while I'm at work. I, gotta, I, I wanna focus on my professional life. I wanna think about just my professional life while I'm at work. God's renewing of our mind affects our whole life, not just part of it. It's good to be professional. It's good to even be relatable to our friends, but not at the cost of neglecting to consider what Jesus teaches all the time. So that's about, do we learn from Jesus? But how about, do we follow? Do we obey Jesus? Do you obey Jesus? Can that be said as a regular aspect of your life, that you obey Jesus? Or is your obedience inconsistent? It's not only about thinking rightly, but also doing rightly, right? What should we do about this? How should I handle this situation? We think about these things similar in the context of being with our friends, being with our families, being at work. In the same way, Christian behavior is not restricted to our home life or our church friends. We are Christians with our friends, we're Christians in our homes, and we're Christians in our jobs. We're Christians all the time. We're always disciples of Jesus, everywhere and all the time. So, I want to encourage us. Let's be real disciples. Let's be holistic disciples. Let's learn from Jesus. Let's follow Jesus everywhere in all of the aspects of our lives. Let's be real disciples. Now, if you're not a Christian, every Christian in this room would testify to not being a perfect disciple, myself included. We'll, and we'll even admit it's pretty difficult at times. It might even be harder to be a disciple of Jesus than not to be a disciple of Jesus sometimes. It might be easier not to be. But every Christian in this room will also testify to it being worth it to be a disciple. Why is it worth it to be a disciple of Jesus? First and foremost, you get to enjoy a personal relationship with Jesus who is God himself. And you get to participate in the life of Jesus. He offers you all that he has so that you can participate in all that he does. He is the king of the universe, indeed the maker of the universe. And he offers to share that authority, to share that kingship with you. First of all, so you can enjoy relationship with him forever, restoring your soul to him. And second, so that you can be a part of restoring other people's souls to him in line with what this passage is about. In chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus invites Peter and Andrew to follow him by saying, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In other words, follow me and you will restore people's souls. Come be Jesus' disciple. Have your soul restored. 
and then participate in the restoration of others. You'll literally be a part of saving the world. That's epic. Come be a part of that. Jesus invites you to be his disciple today. Take him up on that. Take him up on that. Let's look at verse 2 of our sermon text. We're gonna, I'm going to read verse 2 through verse 4. It's a list of names. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the, Zealot, excuse me, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So, these are the 12 disciples who are so named apostles here in this passage. Now, Jesus had other disciples than just these 12. We know this not necessarily from this passage, but from other passages. For example, Luke chapter 6, verse 13. It reads that when the day had come, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So Jesus has a broad base of disciples and selects from them 12. So this isn't exclusive. This isn't the only disciples that he had. But he has selected these 12 disciples uniquely for the specific purpose of being apostles, of being apostles. In the Greek language, the word apostle just means one who is sent, someone who is sent. Pretty general word. And that's exactly what's about to happen in the next paragraph that we're going to preach on next Sunday. They're going to be sent out to proclaim, verse 7 says. But the term apostle, when it refers to these 12, means something more than the generic, the person who is sent, a person who is sent in general. It actually refers to this specific group of disciples when it's used in the New Testament of this group. It refers to these 12. It's, it's, not, as, it's not so much generic. And so what these, tw these 12, they have a unique role, right? They are the first people to spread the good news of Jesus, first of all. And then eventually, they're going to go on to start the Christian church. So that's what the New Testament has in mind when it often refers to apostles, is this group of 12 people that proclaim the good news for the first time and then go on to build the church. They're a unique group. But it's worth pointing out with that said that this is the first and only use of the term apostle in the entire book of Matthew. So... Matthew is not really concerned to explain the unique role of the apostles as a special group of men. Neither does he even make a huge deal about their title as apostles per se. He simply says Jesus gave them authority and then identifies them as the 12 apostles. So their unique role, while it is unique, is not actually emphasized in the book of Matthew. That's not the main point of the apostles in the book of Matthew. The main point of the apostles in the book of Matthew is that they are disciples of Jesus, disciples of Jesus throughout the whole rest of this book. The 12 apostles are almost always simply referred to as the disciples, the disciples. Apostle is never used again in this book. They're the disciples. Sometimes they're called the 12, but almost always the disciples. The main point about them in the book of Matthew, is that they're disciples of Jesus. They are disciples of Jesus. 
These 12 disciples are Jesus' solution to the needy crowds and the plentiful harvest of the previous paragraph of chapter 9. They are his solution. This has been a pattern for Jesus so far. So far, three times Jesus has done this pattern. It's a threefold pattern. One, heal everybody. Two, observe the crowds. And three, address the disciples specifically. So heal everyone, observe the crowds, and address the disciples specifically. The first time this pattern shows up is chapter 4, verse 23. We've read this already. He heals every disease and every affliction, chapter 4, verse 23. I'm just going to read these off. You don't have to uh, flip there. I don't have slides up for it, just kind of for effect. But verse 23, healing every disease, every affliction. Verse 25 of chapter 4, great crowds follow Jesus. And then chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he goes up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he heals everybody, observes great crowds, and then specifically addresses the disciples. This happens a second time in chapter 8, verse 16. He heals all who were sick and everyone who's oppressed by demons. Chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus saw a crowd and gave orders to go to the other side. And then chapter 8, verse 23, his disciples follow him but not the crowds. So again, heals everyone, observes the crowds, and then specifically addresses the disciples. It happens a third time, culminating in this sermon text. Chapter 9, verse 35, healing every disease and every affliction. Chapter 9, verse 36, he sees the crowds. He has compassion on them. Chapter 10, verse 1, he calls to him his 12 disciples. Jesus' solution to all these people needing help Yes is to heal them. He does that initially every time. But then that's not all he does. In fact, in chapter 8, he walks away from the crowds with his disciples. So he heals them, yes. But he always goes to his disciples every time. Jesus' solution to the whole world needing help is not necessarily to individually heal every single person that addresses him. His solution is to invest in 12 normal people for three years, mentoring them to be good disciples. Three years from this passage is Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus will send these disciples out to disciple others, just as he did for them. He invites a small, excuse me, he invests in a small group of people for a pretty long time. This is counterintuitive to me. When I'm personally, when I'm faced with a, a big problem to tackle, I'm kind of inclined to just be like, let's figure it out. Let's just tackle this thing. All the crowds, let's take care of them. Like, I'm just a kind of a send it kind of person. I often will say, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. I say that all the time. I have a very unrealistic, my wife is probably smiling right now because she knows this more than anybody. But I have a very unrealistic expectation of my abilities and my limits. And that's a form of pride is what that is. That's a form of pride. And so that's the specific type of pride that I deal with. But I think others, and maybe you relate to, to that, maybe you relate to this other form of pride. I've seen a struggle with pride in a different way too. Maybe you got big dreams, right? Let's, let's change the world. That's a good dream. That's a big dream. I want to change the world, but I want to be a big-time influencer. I want to influence everybody. I want to be the one who brought everybody there. I want to be the one responsible for it. That's another form of pride. Perhaps you relate to that. 
Well, Jesus, he has neither of those problems. He has a realistic understanding of his human limits, and he does not insist in being the only one who takes care of these people. He invites the 12 disciples to do it with him. Remember, Jesus is king of the whole world. As we've mentioned, he could just do it. He could just fix it. He could just do it right now. He has the ability to do that. But he doesn't do it that way. He doesn't do it that way. No, the creator and king of the world saved the world by investing in a small group of people for a long period of time. The creator and king of the world saved the world by investing in a small group of people for a long period of time. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? On an individual level, there should be someone who mentors you in your walk with Jesus, someone who disciples you. It could be a group of people that mentor you. It could be an individual that disciples you. But someone, someone should, and there is a Christian that you look up to. I want to challenge you this week, reach out to them and ask them to disciple you. Ask them to disciple you. I'm sure they would love to do that. Ask them to do that. If you don't know anybody who who could do that for you, if, if nobody comes to mind, we're a church. We got a lot of people who could do that. If you fill out that welcome card on the back of the seat in front of you, or if you want to come up to me after service, I would love to connect you with someone who would like to disciple you. I lead several discipleship groups every semester. There are plenty of other people in this church who do the exact same thing. We would love to invite you into discipleship. Come, come do that. It's part of our walk with God to be discipled by someone. On the other hand, you should also find someone who you can mentor in their walk with Jesus. Again, it could be a group of people. It could be an individual that you mentor, but you should disciple someone. That's a challenge I have for you. If you're not discipling anyone right now, I want to challenge you to invite someone to be discipled by you. If you can think of someone, reach out to them this week and invite them into that. Ask them if they want to be mentored by you in their walk with Jesus. I bet you that would mean the world to them. That's meant a lot to me when people have invited me into discipleship. I felt really blessed by that. And similar, if you can't think of anyone, fill out the welcome card. Say you want to disciple someone, but you don't know who. We would love to connect you with with someone. We have a lot of people. In particular, college students are going to be flooding in come the spring semester. They're going to need discipling. Let's disciple them, Mercy House. Let's do discipleship together. Just like the 12 disciples. Jesus discipled them, and then they went on to disciple others. Let's do the same together. Now, as I say this, I do want to be gentle as I give this push toward discipleship because there are some cases where I admit it might not make sense for you to disciple another person. Perhaps, and this isn't an exhaustive list, but perhaps there's a significant area of sin in your life that you know you need to repent of uh, before inviting someone into discipleship. I, I understand that. I think that's admirable to take some time to work through the sins in our lives. Maybe On the other hand, there's been a a significant life challenge or you're going through a difficult time and you need to take some time to recover and heal. I want to validate exceptions like that. Those are real. Our life is not only about discipling other people. We need to take care of ourselves in our own walk with Jesus. That's for sure. 
But having validated that, it also must be said that in general, discipleship should be a consistent, regular theme of our lives. In general, discipleship should be a consistent, regular theme in our lives. That should be the case. That should be the case. What does discipleship look like? Maybe I've now convinced you, okay, I need to reach out to someone. I need to do this thing. Let's do it. What do I do? What do I do? I'm glad you asked. Unfortunately, there's no prescribed template. No, that's not all I have to say. But I do have to say that because there is no prescribed template of specifics of what discipleship looks like. I'm going to give you what it essentially is in just a moment. But here's a few examples that I've either participated in or I've observed in my own life as I've seen people do discipleship. Maybe, and this is what it most usually looks like for me, is just hosting a regular Bible study. Open up the Word, read a chapter, maybe a half a chapter every week, and talk about it. Think about how to apply it to your lives and challenge each other with it, encourage each other with it. Have a regular Bible study together. Maybe grabbing regular lunch or coffee to hear about how someone's doing, encouraging them spiritually, caring for them, and challenging them in their walk with Jesus. Maybe it's just a regular prayer gathering together. Maybe it's regularly going for a walk and encouraging people in their spiritual journey. Maybe it's having a regular gathering over your house for dinner. Maybe it's having someone learn from you about God, about whatever you want to teach them, whatever they want to learn about God. Maybe it's training very practically, training people how to serve God in whatever way. Maybe it's raising your children to know Jesus. Maybe it's serving in Mercy House Kids to participate in that with the parents of Mercy House to disciple our children, these children that we just saw at the front, these little disciples. It can look like a lot of things. That's my point. It can look like a lot of things. Each of these 12 disciples had a different story, a different role. They had different gifts. They discipled people differently than each other. We see that. We're going to see that as we see the book of Matthew continue to unfold. We see this also in the book of Acts as well. Each of these 12 disciples discipled people differently. They had different roles. They discipled differently, and so will you and I. My discipleship methods aren't going to be identical to yours. But here is the heart of discipleship. This is essentially what discipleship is. And I think Paul captures it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul tells the Corinthians, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Notice that Paul's not just saying, do what I do. He's not making himself the main point. He's saying, to the degree that I imitate Christ, you should imitate me. We don't just follow each other. This isn't like, a, oh, I like that guy, I like that guy, I like that, or whatever. That, that's not what this is about. This is us helping each other follow Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about following each other. It's not about who's, oh, who's discipling you. or whatever. That'd be like a weird culture, I feel. Like. But no, this is how can we point each other to Jesus? How can we point each other to Jesus? Discipleship is inviting someone to follow Jesus with you. Inviting someone to follow Jesus with you. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
it's worth pointing out that you don't have to have a lot in common to do discipleship together. Take, for example, Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Matthew the tax collector and Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a Jewish sect of the time that resisted the Roman Empire and even occasionally took up arms to do so. They resisted the Roman Empire and occasionally took up arms to do so. Tax collectors were employed by the Roman Empire to exploit Jewish people of their taxes. Matt May very helpfully captured the role of a tax collector and how that would have affected the cultural views about them. People didn't like tax collectors because they exploited them. How do you think a, a Jewish zealot would have felt about a tax collector being in the same discipleship group? Not great. Uh, Simon the zealot would have hated what Matthew the tax collector did. He would have hated it. And Jesus disciples them both together. And it works. It works. It might have been awkward, but they were discipled. They were discipled. And they both became better tax collectors and zealots, respectively, because they were discipled by Jesus and because it happened with them together. You don't need similar ideologies to disciple together. You can disciple political conservatives with political progressives. You can disciple Calvinists with Arminians. You can disciple anyone with anyone. As long as we're all committed to following Jesus together. It's also worth pointing out that discipleship will not always work the way that we hope. It won't always feel like a beautiful success story. Sometimes people turn away from Jesus. Even one of Jesus' own personal disciples turns away from him. You know the story of Judas who betrayed him, it says. We should expect no different in our own discipleship relationships every now and again. Now, it's not the norm, right? I mean, he's one of 12, not that that's a proportion that's going to be categorical, whatever. But we should expect some level of, oh, bummer, of heartbreak. We should expect that because it happened in Jesus' life. It happened in Paul's life too. 2 Timothy 4.10, Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. That was one of his disciples. That's a bummer. In my life, this has been one of the greatest heartbreaking aspects of ministry, I think, for myself, has been when people I've discipled have turned away from Jesus. It really hurts. It's really sad. It's really sad. So it's real. That's genuine. And as we do this, we should anticipate that that'll be the case. But here's another thing we should anticipate. And I don't just say this because I'm an optimist. Often it does work. Third John verse 4, John writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. No greater joy. This is joyful, Mercy House. Let's do joyful discipleship. It will be hard. And sometimes it just won't work. But it is a joy to walk with someone and help them to love Jesus. That is a joy. I get the privilege of doing that as part of my job. And it's a joy. I want to invite you to do that with me. It's a joy. Let's do it together. The last thing I'll note about this text. Verse 4 says, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him? 
As you know, when Judas betrayed Jesus, he was then delivered to the cross. From early on, the Gospel of Matthew anticipates Jesus' death. There's a real sense in which the whole Gospel points forward to His death and expects His death, anticipates His death. There's a sense in which that's the culminating moment of the book of Matthew, that Jesus will die. He'll die for us. It's exactly because Jesus died that we undergo the process of discipleship in the first place. Jesus has all the authority in the world, and yet He of all people, the King and Creator of the universe, He died for us to save us from the punishment that we deserve and then to bring us into beautiful and eternal relationship with Him, which we do not deserve. It's because we're so grateful for Him dying for us that we want to be discipled by Jesus. Jesus, make me like you. I'm so grateful for you. Let me serve you. Let me be discipled by you. We are motivated to be disciples because of what Jesus has done for us. So let's give our lives to Him in a similar way that He has given His life for us. Let's be disciples, Mercy House. In taking communion, we remember Christ's death for our sake. The night Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, He took the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus died for us that we could be disciples, that we would receive all that he has so that we could participate in the life that he has. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for sharing your whole life with us. You let us sit on your throne. You share your authority with us. You share your life with us. You, you've poured your life out for us so that we could enjoy the life that you have. God, thank you for that. Would you make us disciples of yours, Jesus? Let us learn from you. Let us obey you. And let us do that, not in a legalistic way, where we, we try to check things off a box or something, or do things just to do it, do things even to, to earn something. God, I pray that we would just follow you because we're so grateful for you, because we're so grateful for what you have done. Would you let gratitude be the heartbeat of our discipleship with you, Jesus. Thank you for dying for us. Let us remember your death for us now. In your name we pray. Amen.